Hello and welcome to the Foundation for Science and Technology podcast. I'm Gavin Costigan and this week we're stepping away from our monthly look at batteries for a one-off interview with Professor Chris Whitty, who is the new government chief medical officer. Maybe I could start for those people who aren't so familiar that you could set out what the role of the chief medical officer actually is and what you do. The role of chief medical officer has changed almost every decade but central to it throughout its entire existence, and it goes back a long way, has been public health. So it's always been uh, leading public health in the UK, and it has always, to a greater or lesser extent, also had a major role in the medical side of the NHS and advising uh, ministers on that area. Now, in the last 10 years, there's also been a medical director of the NHS, and those roles are distinct, and they have a very important role in leading the NHS side. But the chief medical officer retains an interest across the whole sweep of medicine and health in government. And how does someone like you end up as chief medical officer? What, what, what was your route through to this role? Obviously, everybody who's done this role has come from a different route. I come from an academic public health background originally, but also as a clinician. So I've been simultaneously uh, a jobbing clinical doctor, I still am a jobbing clinical doctor, and a professor of public and international health at London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. But I've also had the opportunity to work in government for the last 10 years as a chief scientific advisor uh, in three roles, in the uh, Department of International Development, here in the Department of Health and Social Care, and also as the interim government chief scientific advisor. And I think that is important for two reasons. Firstly, operating in government is different from operating in either academia or the NHS. And people who've uh, never operated in government, I think, often find it a bit of a shock. Uh, It does operate in a very different uh, way and to very different timescales from those. And the second is that understanding the role of science in government is easier from the inside than the outside. Uh, And although the chief medical officer role is not primarily a scientific role, it is a role where giving independent technical advice is absolutely central and understanding that you have an, it, is, it is critical that the person giving that advice does so independently, sticking to the evidence, irrespective of whether that is convenient or inconvenient to the current government. Yeah. Now, I know it's very early days because you've only just started, but what would you say are your top priorities coming into this role? One of the things that I did before thinking of applying for this job was to read the biographies of previous chief medical officers and the thing which was absolutely common to all of them is that what they thought they would end up doing and what they did end up doing were completely different. So the first thing to say is I anticipate that I will give a very different answer to this in five years than what (laughs) I give now. However, I think that there are some very obvious common problems that I think anyone coming into this role is going to need to deal with. There are some demographic and structural issues the NHS and the wider public health service is going to have to face, which we need to look at really quite carefully in a one to two decade kind of time frame rather than a one to two year kind of time frame. The ageing population uh, itself provides uh, a, a set of challenges and opportunities that we need to think through very systematically. In particular, I think the shift from single diseases being the primary uh, burden of disease to a situation where most people have either no illness or can have several apparently unrelated illnesses. And that's going to lead to a different approach, I think, to the way medicine is going to have to be thought about in the future. There are also some big areas where things are going Uh, forwards which are going to be very positive. For example, vaccination against HPV virus is in due course going to lead to reductions in cervical cancer in women. 
but there are also some areas where things are going backwards and I think two imp- obvious and important ones are obesity and antimicrobial resistance mm. an issue which James Sally Davis the previous CMO made a very ma- major play on rightly uh, so those are the kinds of things I'll be looking at but clearly it's going to be a matter of taking uh, things as they come and we do have some major immediate issues to face in the uh, future in particular uh, what happens over Brexit. Mm-hmm. One of the things you just mentioned was antimicrobial resistance as being a, a, an issue and a concern. What can be done? What research might help you to do that? I think that the thing with that is often missed with antimicrobial resistance is that it is not a single thing. There are a variety of bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and there are different antimicrobial agents. And the way they interact in terms of antimicrobial resistance is completely different. So the problem set for, uh, for example, reducing the prevalence of antimicrobial resistance in high-intensity ITUs or uh, in surgery is a very different problem set to uh, reducing antimicrobial resistance in nursing homes Mm. or for reducing uh, use in GP practices. So I think it's important to understand it is a set of different problems that happen to be bundled together under the term antimicrobial resistance. All of them have solutions and in all cases we'll need to have multiple solutions to deal with the problem. Now broadly there are three things we can do. The first of which, which is the easiest, Um, at least to say, although not necessarily to do scientifically, is to produce new new antimicrobials. And I think that there is a much more of an emphasis on that, and Dame Sally played a very major part in putting that back on the agenda. Uh, The second is to uh, reduce the use of unnecessary antibiotics. That's non-human use, so that's in animals, but that's also amongst all of us. Uh, Very many people are given antibiotics in particular who probably do not need them. But the difficult thing for GPs and other doctors has always been that a small but important proportion of those people really do need them. Mm. And that's particularly true for the very young and the very old. So, for example, the risk of a urinary tract infection uh, in a person in their middle years uh, leading to them dying is very, very low. The risk of that happening in an uh, an elderly person is actually significant. It's not very high, but it's non-trivial. So you can't just have a blanket approach where you say we're not going to give uh, antimicrobials to people. What we need to be doing is targeting the antimicrobials based on both the bugs they've got and the their age and other vulnerability factors. And that's a, that's a, that's a continual issue which needs to be looked at. And the third thing is we've got to recognise that actually for many of the bacteria in particular, there is a significant selection disadvantage to them having antimicrobial resistance genes expressed. For, want for a better term. So if you take away the selection pressure of the antimicrobials and do other sensible things, you actually get a, re- you get a regression back to uh, less resistant organisms. And that's happened in the UK in particular with MRSA. Yeah. So in fact, it may well be a matter of us taking it, taking our winding the clock backwards by reducing drug pressure as much as it is actually producing new antibiotics. Okay. Also within the infectious diseases area, obviously the UK seen a rise in measles. And I'm wondering what can be done both to counter the drop-off in vaccinations and, of course, to provide reassurance to parents who are concerned about it. Well, if you look at vaccine-preventable diseases, and they are one of the great miracles of medicine in the last 50 years, the extraordinary reduction in many of the, for example, severe cases of meningitis, diarrhoea, all the kind of things that used to uh, threaten the lives of children and indeed older people. 
it is rather disheartening to see a slow but steady decrease in the uptake of vaccines for some of these um, these conditions and this of course is made up of, of, of four different elements and we need to tackle all of them the first of which is many people I think underestimate quite how serious these diseases are people think of measles as a trivial disease it is not it can kill children it can leave them brain damaged it can cause really dr- uh, dreadful problems for people throughout their life course so people need to understand the severity of the disease. Secondly, I think people underestimate quite how effective these vaccines are. Most of them are highly effective. And when you read some of the things on the internet, you get the impression that actually they work. They don't work very well. That is not, in most cases, true. Third thing is that uh, people need to understand the risks of vaccination, which are usually very small, but never zero. But these are heavily exaggerated in certain bits of uh, the internet in particular. And of course, people's desire to have a, a vaccination is made up of basically all those three elements. They have to see the positive reasons to have it, and then they see the negative reasons they're worried about, and those need to be put in balance. And one of the problems is that those who push the fact that vaccines are dangerous have got a degree of prominence that is way out of proportion to where they should be. And the final bit, which is a mechanistic one, but is important, is we need to make it easy for people to have vaccines. If on on average they wish to have a vaccination, but they find it really difficult practically, that is going to reduce the probability they'll be uptake, even if actually the parents or the uh, person involved actually wants to have a vaccine. So we do need to have to look at that kind of practical element of delivery. I think if you look at all of those, I think we can reverse the trend. It has been quite a slow downward slope. It's not a catastrophic one, which has been in some parts of the world, but it is one we can't uh, leave just adrift. Turning away from infectious diseases to uh, non-communicable diseases, obviously there's uh, issues of obesity and diabetes that have been rising in the UK. I'm interested what more can be done and also um, what the role maybe of the research community might be in helping that. It's pretty clear that there are some things we know what to do, but there is a large role for the research community in helping us to um, go further uh, on this. Fundamentally, uh, the problem, of course, is that people are eating more calories, um, whether it be sugars, fats or other other areas, relative to where it was historically. So if you look back in time, people were eating less and there was less obesity and obesity leads, as night follows day, to some people going on to have type 2 diabetes. So those essentially ride together. And we need to do that in a way that works for what people want to eat. So it's not all about lecturing them, saying they should be just changing everything they do. Also works with industry because there is a huge industry providing food, that's a good thing, but also changing the way people have food presented to them. We need to work very closely with them. And there are ways that we can actually help to make it easier for people to have the kinds of things they can eat and drink whilst having fewer calories in them. And a good example of that recently was the uh, sugar levy mm-hmm. um, that was uh, introduced by the government and has led to uh, a roughly 22% reduction in the amount of sugar consumed, and yet people carried on drinking soft drinks. So people were enjoying, continuing to enjoy what they wanted to enjoy, industry wasn't being harmed, and yet the amount of sugar went down. That's a nice example of the kind of things that can be done that uh, avoids too many unpleasant trade-offs between the different things people want. And presumably it will take some time before we can see the effect of that on health, but that will come through in time. Yes, uh, inevitably, because it takes a while for uh, weight gain to happen, particularly in childhood, uh, it will take us a while before we can uh, see the effects of that directly. But 
all the data really show that if you significantly reduce the number of calories in, the weight gain will reduce relative to where it would have been elsewhere. So I, I'd be very surprised if we don't see a significant impact of that. Also on, on dental caries, which is still, unfortunately, the uh, most common reason why children are admitted to hospital uh, for a procedure. Okay. I didn't know that. On the plus side, actually, in, in UK... Um uh, public health and non-communicable diseases is smoking, where there's been quite a decline over many years due to changes in, in attitudes, partly driven by government policy. How do we make sure that this continues? And obviously, one of the things that's now on the market is vaping, which for some people is uh, is a sort of harm reduction. For other people, is potentially worrying as a as a, as a gateway to to other things. So, how do we uh, regulate in this kind of uh, area? Well, smoking there certainly has been success, but success is not complete success until there is nobody smoking. Mm-hmm. Smoking, to be clear, unlike the great majority of other areas where you say a little bit is fine, smoking, the only correct answer is zero. Mm-hmm. And so although you're heading the right way, it's a while before we will get to zero. So the pressure needs to continue until we get to that stage. I think that the, the current debate around vaping is is confusing people and I think that's a shame because in fact there is some relative there is a very large degree of consensus as to uh, the key issues uh, it is clear that for almost everybody moving from smoking to vaping is a definite step in the right direction a very very substantial step in the right direction smoking is so extraordinarily harmful that virtually anything is going to be better and uh, the current regulated products in the UK are certainly significantly better than smoking. So if you're smoking and the option is to start vaping, start vaping. It is equally clear, everyone agrees, we should not be uh, allowing um, any increase in uh, vaping for teenagers, children, younger people. Uh, This is a very, very bad thing to happen. I don't think anyone responsible is arguing for that. There's a a basic uh, debate um, in the UK, it's slightly different in the US where the market is very different, where I think there is a degree of uncertainty is around uh, flavourings. Mm. Uh, and that com- that's comprises two different issues. Um, there's a, a set of issues around are flavourings being used to encourage people who currently do not smoke to take up vaping. That would be a very bad thing if true. And I think the only way of testing that is actually what happens in the market, not what people claim is going to happen, but actually what does happen. Uh, but if there's any evidence that's the case, we need to move quite solidly against it. And the second is, we do not know the long-term effects of these flavourings on the lungs, Mm. but there is a high chance that some of them, at least, are considerably more dangerous than nothing at all. Mm. So, uh, and we need to think about that really quite carefully. Now, I would go back, though, to say, if you're a smoker, moving over to vaping as an alternative to smoking is one of the best things you could do for your health this year. But the long-term effects on people who are not smokers are, are really not clear yet, and I think we need to think about that a bit more carefully. Okay, no, that's uh, that's very clear. It leads a little bit into the area of preventative health care. And rather than investing in solving people's health problems, encouraging the types of things that, that lead to uh, them not having those problems in the first place. And again, because with a foundation for science and technology, I'm interested in what research would be helpful, what don't we know, how can the research community help the understanding in this area? Well, I think that if we look across public health research in general and preventative research in general, uh, the UK was one of the world leaders in this area. I think um, we have some extremely good uh, preventative research going on, but I think we, ha- we would 
we could go a lot further than we are in terms of public health and preventative research. Uh, and if I could, in, if we look forward in terms of the kind of research that we would like to see more of in the UK, working with colleagues in public health, both in traditional public health, but also from other areas like engineering, like education, like uh, people who are in, in social anthropologists who are involved in behaviour change, uh, to broaden the range of things we can do to help people to have the best and most enjoyable lives they can have, which are at the same time the healthiest lives they can have, is something where I think we could do a lot more. And we were very keen to encourage that. National Institute for Health Research, which I'm also head of, is very keen to uh, support that. And so are all the re other research funders. So this is an area of growth, in our view, because we think that this is an area we really could do a lot better than we are at the moment, although there is very good work uh, going on at present. It's difficult to generalise because it depends on which individual health problem you're talking about. But if you take almost any area of health, there are areas of research we should be doing to help mm. unpreventative arena. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, it'd be interesting to pick up an, an example just to sort of illustrate what you said. Uh, but also to think about what you see some of the prioritising in health research in the next couple of years are anyway across the piece. I, I think that if you're thinking about research, it's always a mistake to think in one to two year cycles. Okay. So in reality, if you look at uh, most REF case studies, if you look at most ways things work, 15 years from the conception of an idea to it actually having significant impact is pretty typical uh, for sort of median median impact. And that isn't just in health, incidentally, that's, that's across the board. So I think it is important to take um, a much longer term view on this. And if you project forward 15 years, there are quite a few things that are predictably going to be quite different to what they are at the moment. Clearly, there will be some, some things that are unpredictably different. And for that, probably the biggest uh, change is going to be the, the change in the demographic shape of the UK, particularly in areas outside cities, mm -hmm. where there will be a lot of older people. And with, with that comes a large number of additional things that we're going to need to do in those areas to make sure people are best supported in their homes and, as you say, that we prevent any unnecessary illness uh, that we can do. Also within the UK, we're lucky to have some quite strong industrial players, some in big pharmaceuticals, but also in medical devices and other, other kind of areas. How do we harness that strength for the UK, for the NHS? I mean, I think that there are several things that are generic across the whole of the research arena. Probably the single one that most industries would say would help us is if we could uh, make it easier for anonymised data to flow through the system so that people can actually use data not to identify individual people but to actually be able to uh, use the huge amount of data in the NHS in a way that the public feel comfortable with and that's a very very important thing to do. So that will be true for absolutely every area of, of research. But you're right to differentiate between the multiple bits of the life sciences industry and if you look at the pharma industry, biopharma industry, which is what people tend to think of, there is, it, is, it is, frankly, from a government point of view, easier to find a small number of companies that represent the whole industry in pharma, and they tend also to be geographically a bit more clustered, than in medical devices, where the nature of the market is it's much more dispersed across the UK, which is fantastic. It tends to be more clustered around areas of engineering, for example, than the mm. farm industry uh, might be. Uh, but it also tends to be in much smaller firms and mm. areas. And that makes it much harder to say these six organisations can reasonably speak for the whole industry. It's a much more variegated one. So you're absolutely right. And I do think that trying to understand the multiple needs of the devices industry 
so that they can help to support the health of the UK as well as the economy mm. uh, is critical. And I think if you look at medical devices regulation and medical devices support, the whole infrastructure behind it, all of them are less well developed than they are for pharma. Mm. Yeah, and and it's for those reasons that you've you've set out that the firms are small, and it's uh, it's actually quite hard to uh, speak to them in a representative type of way. Yes. Yeah. I guess I have to ask you about Brexit and just some reflections on the implications of Brexit for healthcare in the UK. And, and what we might do to mitigate against those effects? Very clearly, in on Brexit, the the risks of Brexit uh, to health in the UK depend on what kind of Brexit we have. And I don't. I think that's making an obvious point, which everybody uh, would accept. Uh, within that, um, there are basically two in two sets of risks in the short and medium term and then one on the longer term that we just need to make sure we think about and to be clear I've got very many colleagues in uh, Department of Health and Social Care and across government and in the NHS working flat out to make sure these risks are minimized um, as far as possible. The initial ones and the ones that tend to get most of the airtime are around goods, so drugs, devices and medical supplies coming in mm. and there's, there's multiple routes people are trying to take to try and mitigate that risk. I think we should be, be clear that the medical market does not operate entirely efficiently the whole time, even under the best of circumstances. So from time to time there are stockouts of drugs and devices, there always have been and it's you know even without brexit that has happened from time to time brexit obviously it may make the frictions greater although everything people are doing is trying to make sure that's minimized as best we can in the medium term the the issue because i think the market of goods will probably adjust to whatever new system we find ourselves in uh, it's very important that we continue to provide a really good welcome and support for EU colleagues who work in medical medicine, nursing and social care. Uh, we depend on a very large number of excellent doctors, nurses and social care workers, other health professionals across the whole of the NHS who are trained from the EU. Uh, uh, and if they cease to see the UK as a good place to work, that would provide a significant risk to the system. So we really must make sure that they feel this is an excellent place to continue to work. And then in the longer term, it is important that we maintain our role as one of the leading scientific nations in the world and in many areas the leading one in, the, in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and that does, uh, science is an international discipline, we must maintain our ability to be a global, international, open country for science. Uh, and if we can do all those three, then we will mitigate the, the risk to a large degree, but I mean, all of those are going to require a lot of work. Yeah. So wrapping up all the things that you've said as we're coming towards the end, you clearly have a remarkably busy job with a number of different challenges and opportunities. What would you say that success would look like for you in this new role? Last week we had the uh, privilege of celebrating the successes of Dame Sally Davis, who was my predecessor. So it was very interesting to look at what she'd done. Uh, and there were two or three headline things, antimicrobial resistance high on the list, uh, the creation of the National Institute for Health Research, which people concentrated on. And those are the kind of really big ticket items. But the reality is all the things that no one talked about, stacked on top of one another, were in fact the bigger contribution that she had, which people like me know about because we've seen it close up, but of course most people don't. So what I would really hope is that we've been able to make, as a collective team, the Chief Medical Officers together and the Chief Medical Officers of the United Kingdom together, a very 
a difference on a very, very large number of small issues, which no one will see, and then a few small issues, which are the, where we actually, a small number of issues where we actually take a really big punt. Uh, those ones we're still trying to work out, and I, I don't want to try and uh, prejudge where we get to on those. My hope at the end of the uh, end of my time, though, is that I will have been as successful as Dame Sally was in hers, because she really was very successful. Chris Whitty, thank you very much. Next week on the podcast, uh, we're going to switch topics and look at the industrial use of drones, uh, and I hope you can join us for that. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find all our podcasts on soundcloud.com or on the Foundation's website at www.foundation.org.uk.